Hey, everybody, welcome to Artifice episode 91. This is a conversation that I am so excited for you guys to hear. It's with my friend, Reed Criddle. And I don't use the word friend lightly. Reed is a person that I uh, have known kind of a long time. And I feel like he knows me really well. And um, I think maybe I know him pretty well, too. But um, Reed and I met when I we were both serving on the board of the Utah chapter of the American Choral Directors Association, which I joined um, as the jazz, like, what do they call it? Like something R&R, like repertoire and something, can't remember, um, but like the jazz representative person, um, because as some of you definitely don't know, probably no one knows, um, the state of Utah has um, almost no vocal jazz going on in uh, schools, like really almost none, um, which feels like a bit of a tragedy to me personally for obvious reasons. So um, I I uh, volunteered to join the board because I wanted to try to um, support more vocal jazz programs in the high schools and colleges and um, anywhere else. And um, at the time that I joined the board, Reed was the president of the Utah chapter of ACDA. And it was kind of the same year, like in this, in this year that just the year that I happened to join, which I think was 2013. Um, we, the, the Utah chapter had been talking, I guess, for years about, um, doing like a state conference, um, which maybe they, I think they had never done before or hadn't done in like decades. And, um, I, being a person who was eager to, um, I was still at this point, like very new to Utah and was eager to, um, you know, be part of a community and eager to kind of, um, make, you know, important changes to the, um, musical landscape of my new home. Um, I volunteered to be on the like committee for planning the, uh, new conference. And I was like this brand new person and nobody knew me. And I like was just kind of a rando on the board. Like I, I think my very, very first board meeting was the meeting that they were like, let's, what are we going to do about this conference? So I volunteered to be on the committee. Um, and Reed was the president of the chapter. And then pretty quickly, like it was kind of just like Reed and I that were working on it a whole bunch. Um, and so we spent like a ton of time like talking and working together um planning this conference um that uh I think we were both like really really proud of and then we worked together for the next year too and then um Reed left as president and I I did one more year as kind of like uh, the conference chair um and uh so we talk about it a little bit in the episode but I feel like Reed knows like a version of me that very few people do which is like the um like hyper organized event planning, you know, type of self, which is, you know, a really, uh, abiding part of my personal identity. And yeah, Reed is just a person who, who knows that, which makes me feel, you know, seen and loved and appreciated. And, um, in turn, I love Reed. He is just one of my favorite people in the whole world and is just endlessly kind and lovely and smart and charming and, um, yeah, like all of the good things, like Reed is the kind of person that I think like, um, I'm, I'm the oldest sibling in my family and I have older siblings. And I always think like, 
I, I love the idea of having an older brother that, uh, is like Reed Credle. <laughs> and there's a couple of people that I feel this way about and, and yeah, very, very few. And Reed is in this kind of small group of people that I think like, um, you know, he's a role model for me, I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, and a, and a person whose opinion really, really matters to me. So I've been talking a lot about me in this intro and I want you guys to know about Dr. Reed Criddle. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him now. Dr. Reed Criddle is director of choral activities at Utah Valley University, where he conducts the chamber choir and men's choir and teaches conducting and voice. Twice recipient of the UVU Faculty Senate Teaching Excellence Award, his compositions and arrangements are available through Earth Songs, Hal Leonard, and Santa Barbara Music Publishing. As a conductor and a U.S. Fulbright Senior Scholar, he has directed ensembles, conducted research, and led workshops throughout Europe, Asia, Cuba, and the United States. He is editor of Chanting the Medicine Buddha Sutra, um, an ethnography of Buddhist liturgy. His pioneering English translation, translation of third century philosopher Ruanji's essay on music is published by Asian Music. Um, and then there's a paragraph about Reed's work with um, ACDA and NCCO um, and some other things. What else do I want to tell you from this? So, okay, so you you can read uh, Reed's bio to see um, more about his uh, accolades and um, experiences as a conductor and some of the different um, amazing groups he's worked with. And finally, he is a graduate of Stanford University, the Eastman School of Music, and the University of Michigan. So, Reed is very impressive and, like I have said, lovely, and I'm sure that you will hear that and feel that by the end of this interview. So, without further ado, here comes one of my favorite people ever, Reed Criddle. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. I have something interesting to hear. Oh my gosh, Reed, you have such a beautiful mind. I'm so excited to interview you. Thanks. Actually, I've been wanting to interview you like pretty much since I started the podcast, but I've been really um, conscious about trying not to put all of my musician friends like right <laughs> at the beginning. Like, yeah. Because I interview people from like all different mediums, so I'm trying to kind of... Have you, you had know, other choir directors on the show? I, I don't think so. Huh. Have I? Because you know quite a few. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like, <laughs> yeah, just trying to kind of like spread everybody out. I don't think I have. I interviewed um, Melissa Heath yeah. a while ago. So I've interviewed a lot of singers and a, a couple of classical singers. But yeah, no. This is weird to have the mask and this. It feels very... Um, I know. Well, you can, you're welcome you to take like a pilot, either off. You know? <laughs> well, actually, it's funny that you say that because like since I've started doing interviews with the mask on, when I go to like take my headphones off at the end of the interview, I feel like, what am I removing? Like, mm -hmm. I feel very like mm -hmm. distracted about it. <laughs> 
but yeah, just make yourself comfy. And the mic, you really like can't tell. I mean, when I'm editing the episodes with the mask, sometimes you'll I'll hear it like brush up. Yeah, but other than that, like it really doesn't affect the sound at all. Um, well, let's get started. Okay. Um, so I always ask everybody at the beginning, what were you like as a creative child? Like, what was what were the stuff that you were working on as a little kid, and kind of the first like clues that you had creative stuff going on in your brain? Hmm. Well, you know, I grew up in a very musical family. Yeah. Um, and uh, so music has kind of been a big part of my life since I started singing in a children's choir at the age of seven and piano lessons at eight. Um, and even as a young piano student, I remember writing my first composition. You did? Yeah. Okay, wait. I was probably 10, I, I think. I don't think I know that you have a musical family. I mean, what, do, mm-hmm. are your, either of your parents professional musicians? Um, you or know, just... my mom's a preschool teacher, or she was a, a preschool teacher. Okay. And she would pull out the guitar and do circle time around the rug. Okay with puppets and sing lots of songs. And my dad is a, an opera lover, but not a performer. Okay. So you had people in your family who just loved music. were doing mm-hmm. it all the time. Not professional musicians. Um, are, where are you in like the birth order in the family? Yeah. I'm the third of four. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the older siblings were doing music too. Yeah. All, all of us were kind of in the same regimen of, of piano lessons and choir and you all so did forth. like the children's choir. Yep. Okay. So is there, are any of your siblings professional artists now or professional creatives? <laughs> Our family is divided between lawyers and educators. Yeah. So, um, uh, I think my dad as a law, as an attorney is, uh, my dad's a lawyer too. Is that I right? I don't think we've ever talked about that. No. Yeah. I'm sure it, Informs the way we uh, create. It definitely informs how I think about Mm -hmm. strategizing and planning. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the other half are educators and mostly music educators. My younger sister went to college um, and majored in uh, elementary music education. Okay, cool. And my sister, though she went into anthropology, has been very active in in music throughout her life. So, Um, But I'm the only one who's kind of doing it as a career. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, do you, well, these are maybe like kind of like not questions that have a specific answer, but what do you think about like, did, did, do you think that your family saw you as like extra creative, like beyond kind of what everyone else was doing? And also did you feel like you had some different stuff going on? Um, it's not to say that you do. I just am curious, like you know, how what it seemed like as a kid. I I was a pretty shy kid. Uh, you know, I'm naturally an introvert. Yeah. And and yet when the you know the vi- the home video camera comes around, yeah, <laughs> it pans the the family and everyone's kind of doing their thing, and then here I am facing the camera, yeah. making faces like a little and, ham. Yeah, yeah, a little ham. <laughs> And yet I was so shy in most social situations. Um, I feel like I was like that too. Like a ham on stage and then very shy. Right. You know, it's funny. I think back to um, as a kid, I used to always say to parents or whomever, like, Just don't look at me. Don't look at me. I, I felt very uncomfortable yeah. being noticed. Yeah. So it's kind of ironic that. Now you're on stage all the time. My job is look yeah. at me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Please look at me. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> As a conductor. I'm begging you, look at me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm so fascinated. Like, you know, I've now done like 
I'm getting close to a hundred interviews now. And it's been so interesting to see, like, you know, there, there are things that I find that kind of most of my guests will sort of have in common, but these questions about like, was there something kind of different about you as a child, even just from your own perspective? Um, some people will be like, yeah, I mean, I was definitely like an artsy kid from right at the beginning. And some people will tell me like, no, not at all. I like was in, I played on the football team and then like I got into graphic design in college, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so interesting to me, but I do like to ask people about, you know, like I'm so interested in kind of our identities as artists and kind of where and how those began. And I know that like when I was a little kid, I felt pretty artsy. Do you haven't do like, how do you remember feeling about yourself? Yeah. I remember feeling that way too as a kid, but because I was surrounded by artsy um, siblings and yeah. and so forth. Um, it didn't feel unusual. It just felt like you were kind of the same amount of anything right? as your siblings. This is what kids do when they grow yeah. up. And, uh, you know, my mom was, when we were really little, she would take us with sketch pads and literal ink bottles, yeah. you know, oh and pen. Like a, well, How romantic, like an inkwell, yeah. Yes. And we would go sketching. We'd go to like a park oh, and sketch. I... A dream of a childhood like that. <laughs> or or when we go on vacation, we'd go to, you know, let's say we took a family trip to Italy, you know, we would go to the museums, but we'd almost spend more time sitting out on the steps, like trying to sketch out. That's so beautiful. Some, you know, yeah. statue. And your family's from like the Bay Area? Yeah, I yeah. grew up in, in the East Bay, in the Oakland area. Oh, I want to know more about like, I want, I have, I'm trying to think of what specific questions I have. Well, maybe I'll ask this. Did you, um, did you all take lessons from the same piano teacher? Yeah. Did your, did the piano teacher, did you feel like the piano teacher felt like you were more musically inclined than the other kids? No. There's no reflection of this kind of thing at all. Yeah. I love it. I love hearing that. In fact, I would say I was middle of the pack in terms of (laughs) my talent when it came to, to piano lessons. I, I don't know if you have this experience, but I felt like doing piano lessons, um, you know, there's always that pressure of the recital. Like yes. the whole studio gets together and you kind yeah. of com- size yourself up. So, so stressful. Compared to whatever other people are learning and where you think you should be. And, yeah. And there's just kind of this moment um, of reckoning. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and it wasn't until I finished, uh, until I decided to stop taking piano lessons after my freshman year in high school that I started to love piano. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would sit down on the piano and probably play way more than I ever did just yeah. in my s- structured half hour, you know, practice yeah. times that were dictated to me. Yeah. I don't think I had quite the same experience, but I definitely did like, cause I, I think about this a fair amount now. Cause I, cause I'm asking people these kinds of questions and trying to remember like, what was it actually like? And I, I'm actually like friends on Facebook with my old piano teacher. And she tells me I was an excellent student, but I definitely wasn't the kind of piano student who was like competing, like Mm -hmm. practicing four hours a day. So, I mean, I certainly was not any kind of like a piano prodigy, like not even remotely, Mm -hmm. but I do remember distinctly, like from right at least right when I started taking piano lessons and maybe even before I started taking piano lessons, I remember feeling like there was a difference between the stuff I was supposed to practice and like the playing that I was doing at the piano. 
And I always did a lot of playing <laughs> at the piano, like just playing with the pedals, mm -hmm. like trying, like playing things an octave up. Um, like I always felt very yeah. drawn to like just the sounds that I could make. Right. But I, I saw that as like a very different thing than like, I'm practicing this thing, this exercise, you know, four times or whatever my, you know, practice was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, I can recall even when I was in piano lessons, I would take a Sunday and I would just sit down at the piano and pull out the the hymn book that we would sing from yeah. the church. And, um, but I guess this is evidence of my creativity at that point. I, I would play through like, them and see how many I could just kind of play through and sight read through on yeah. in a given you know, hour or whatever. But I would take ones that were major and try to play the yeah, minor. Like a little arranging. I did the right. same thing, like kind of low key arranging. Right. Like, or, can I make the left hand prettier, easier? Or, yes. Yeah. Or, or because <laughs> I didn't want, like I was saying about being noticed, I didn't want the attention. If I had parents that were in the other room in the kitchen, like, oh, yeah. how sweet that you're playing hymns on a Sunday. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and that would just kind of boil my blood. Yeah. I wasn't doing it for any performance. Right. Um, oh my gosh. So I relate to that so much. Like <laughs> you're seeing what you're doing is like this cerebral thing. Right. Like, I'm and not so, performing for you. <laughs> and I would, uh, I would rebel so funny. and I would, yeah. you know, play through a hymn and then stop on the second to last chord. <laughs> right. How dare you have expectations for me to finish this yep. for your entertainment. And I think even it's just so that funny. kind of, I don't know, childhood whimsy. Yeah. Would, has has lasted yeah. you know in in I what i do like now too. and how i create and how mm -hmm. i like to set up expectations and break them and that kind of thing i'd so relate to that i really feel the same way and yeah i i think the feelings that i have when i'm creating now are are so similar to those like childhood experiences of just like exploration and just testing things and mm -hmm. kind of following a curiosity so much more than like you know, kind of rigid, like methodical. Um, I definitely do that too. I mean, I was yeah. thinking last night, um, just, you know, thinking about interviewing you today and thinking like, I feel like you are a person in the world who knows like a certain side of me that very few people do because <laughs> we have done planning and organizing right. together. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like people have an idea that I'm an organized person, oh. but I feel like you know this in a different way than other people do. You're one of the, you are <laughs> one of the most organized, the queen bee of, of, uh, systematic thinking yeah, I, when it comes to planning events and, and people and things. And that's, that's one of your great skills. Thanks for saying that. I feel like that's that, true. I feel like that too. It's so funny though. Cause that part of my brain, it feels like, it also feels very creative, but when I'm like writing music, like that mm. part of my brain is not, Oh, it's, I'm doing a different thing. You shut so. off the, the, yeah. um, everything's gotta know, be in that, its place. Yeah. And it's very just like, let's see what happens. Okay. Like <laughs> totally different thing. And you know, I do that too when I'm composing, cause I write a lot of music and mostly choral music because those are the ensembles I, um, yeah, they I work lead, with, yeah. but others too. And, um, even though I love music theory and analysis and kind of understanding how the pieces are put together when I actually sit down to compose and be creative. Yeah. I, if I write that way, I hate the output. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, 
uh, the the pieces I enjoy the the most are just ones that where it there feels like there's some kind of intuition or inspiration yeah. or just something that just you know when you just you just hear it it comes to your totally to your ear yeah like it feels kind of intuitive instead of mm-hmm. methodical yeah yeah and if I try to go about it in some cerebral way way it's just it doesn't work. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. Yeah, and and when I'm teaching, because I, I I teach songwriting with a lot of my students, and uh, when I when I feel like my students like want it to just like work a certain mm-hmm. way, I just I feel like a lot of times the thing that I struggle the most to teach is just like you got to just sit with it for mm-hmm. like maybe a long time, like just kind of let it like tell you what it wants to be. Yeah, <laughs> which sounds so like. Not like a thing that I normally would say, but that's so true. Yeah, it just for those of us that like to control, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> to be in control and have self control and yeah. all these things, yeah. And for music, I I always feel that like the kernel of the essence of the piece of music at hand has to have some element of that, yeah. And then once once that is is ha, has its authentic self, then everything else can be kind of built up around yes. it in in these structured ways that we tend to want to do. Absolutely. (laughs) I, I, yes. Like, I don't think I ever have like said it something quite like that, but I totally feel like that. Like you have to like, once the music tells you what it is, like it, Uh it gives you this kind of like little clue. It has this little personality that like, like once you feel that that kind of essence is happening, then you're not going to hurt that. And then you can apply method. I, I there feel must like be an application here yeah. for life, for parenting, for, <laughs> yeah. you know, relationships of, you know, yeah. seeing people as they, the kernel of who they are. I think. And then, you know. It's definitely something to think about. Anyway. That's why I love these conversations. Like people, cause I, I'm also such an introvert, um, but I love have, I love like, I love conversations and I love people and like people will say things to me in these interviews that I will think about for like a year. <laughs> I'm just like, Hmm. And I feel like, yeah, maybe there's an analogy there that needs to be fleshed out a bit. But don't you think if, if you went about it the opposite way and you started with something systematic or something that felt, you know, intentional, and then you try to be creative on top of that, it just comes out false. Yeah. And, um, or forced or just, Lacking. Have you ever read anything about mm-hmm. how Stravinsky would write? Tell me. Because, well, I don't know much, but there's this like there's this quote from Stravinsky that specifically is like, "I'm overwhelmed by the amount of possibility. Like I'm mm. like when I'm starting from nothing, I feel like totally overwhelmed by like, what if I go down the wrong branch? Like what if I go this way? So he would like limit himself to these like really yeah. particular rules. Yeah. Um, which I, I can relate to that. Like I sometimes Mm -hmm. definitely will do that, but I, but I almost feel like it's not method as much as for me. It's like, if I give myself like a strict rule to create within, I almost will like discover something that I never could have planned to discover. Yeah. That's so true. You know, otherwise there's limited, limitless possibilities and it just, it feels very overwhelming. Yeah, Yeah. Overwhelming. But I don't think of that so much as like planning. It just feels more like tricking myself into like a creative starting point Mm -hmm. or something but sometimes sometimes the way i'll do that is through imitation yeah so i'll i'll decide i'm going to write a piece or conduct a a song or or teach a piece um of music in the style of a somebody yeah and and just by channeling that person's energy or that person's um psyche yeah 
uh, it helps me to find a new me, you a know, new thing, a totally. new thing yeah. that probably isn't them. Yeah. And wasn't me originally. It's just right. kind of in between that hybrid middle I space. I love that kind of thing. One thing that's like such a recurring thing theme for me on this podcast is like authenticity being like totally fluid. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if, if your authentic self is like some kind of like stagnant thing, like how could you create, like if you're creating things, you're automatically also like kind of creating a fluid self. Yeah. I think. Okay. Well, I have a couple more questions about your childhood. Okay. Um, besides music, what else were you doing? So you said you were like sketching, like, but were you yeah. writing, writing words? Uh, writing no, I was never poems? a poet. No, that, that still intimidates me to this day. <laughs> um, you know, just angsty middle school yeah. journals, but, um, sure. <laughs> uh, but Oh, I did a lot of running in cross country in high school and in track and ran hurdles and, and, yeah. uh, does that I, feel like, does that, um, spark a similar part of your brain as like the thing that you feel creative about or does it feel totally different? Um, only in the sense of release perhaps yeah. of this kind of, you know, put all your cares to the side for a moment and, yeah. and just kind of be in the moment. Um, but otherwise I, I, it feels different to me. Not related. <laughs> well, some, sometimes I feel like, I mean, this is something, do you know, Kristen Bromley? She yeah. teaches guitar at BYU. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I was, ta- I interviewed her a while back and we were talking about how sometimes these kinds of like activities can feel related to the creative process in sort of a linear way. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's not creative, but it's like pre-creative. Like, you know, I, I was wondering if maybe like running feels like something that happens like while you're thinking, you know, I, I tell you what it does for me. It, it, um, uh, challenges you. Yeah. Right. So saying I'm going to run three miles or I'm going to, I'm going to do, a mile in this, a certain pace. Uh, if you're constantly challenging yourself and kind of upping the game um, through your training, that's that has kind of influence on the way that your mind just kind of works and your yeah. your routines when you kind of approach something new. Yeah. And and with art, you know, with artists, there it seems like there's some artists, musicians that that uh, do their thing and stick to their thing really closely. Yeah. And, uh, and then there are others that keep exploring and they're like, yeah. continue to reinvent who they are. Yeah. Um, and I, I see myself more as the latter. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like, um, it's like the notion, one, one of the, the attributes I, I try to, um, uh, I, I uh, strive for is that that sense of the Renaissance man. Yeah. You know, somebody who, who dabbles in many things yeah. and, um, and goes for breadth instead of yeah, just depth in one category, like being a specialist do you in feel, one. Do you ever get, do you feel like insecure about that ever? Like, yeah. yeah. I, um, the, you know, as time has gone on less yeah. so, yeah. but I remember feeling like, um, as you go into your career and for me, that's conducting, um, you do as a, as a high school student, I was a breath kind of student. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love to dabble in many things. And the idea of choosing one major in college was, 
yeah. kind of a scary notion. Yeah. Because I didn't want to commit to that. I think I feel much more like that as well. And then going to graduate school and specialize even more uh, in master's and doctoral degrees. <laughs> in fact, that was so kind of terrifying for me that I chose one field. Did a master's, I double majored in two fields. Really? <laughs> then I, I did a master's in one of those fields. Yeah. And then I did a master's in the <gasps> other field. And then I went back to... <laughs> oh my gosh, Reed, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, I sometimes do get a little bit like, I don't know that I feel, well, I guess I must feel a little insecure about it, but I, I sometimes feel a little defensive mm-hmm. about like a, having this kind of breadth of interest um, and maybe not feeling like... As much depth as some of my colleagues have, um, and I don't know that it's, it's that you don't have depth because you do. Thank you. Right? <laughs> I you know, mean, anyone who yeah. spends spends the time yeah. on their craft is going to have, you know, is good is going to have that depth um, to varying degrees. But, um, I, you know, in in this digital era, it seems like. Um, like what is a specialist yeah. that the sense that um, someone, anyone could go on Google and like find a tidbit of knowledge, a factoid. Right. right? Yeah. And, uh, and does that make them a specialist? If, if they post on social media about something, yeah, it's like uh, the pandemic and Dr. Fauci, you know, yeah. everyone seems seeming to know more than yes. the specialist. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it feels like what really does make someone, a specialist to me is that they have an understanding of context yeah in for their field but even maybe more broadly that actually that um breadth of understanding about yeah a single concept yeah is what makes you a specialist and not yeah. even knowing that the fact yeah right so right the yeah. number so of you facts can... you know is at this point digital age i don't think is even like it doesn't matter. Crucial yeah. thing. Yeah. So much as your Google. understanding of like how to learn, how to put things together, or what to kind of do. Yeah. yeah. I think I agree with that. And so the re- this sense of renaissance or like of um, I forget how you put it, but just having more of a, a broad yeah skill set, I think is um, demonstrates I just, expertise. I like it better. I, yeah. That's like it's one thing too that I find as I as I interview a lot of really accomplished people and people who have a lot of commitment to what they do. Um, I find that like there, there is something to be said for just like what you're, what you're just kind of good at, what you're kind of drawn to. And I think Mm -hmm. some people really like, it is like all about that one thing. Hmm. And for some people it's like, I don't know, maybe like a busyness, you know, like just, I want to kind of like understand a lot of things. I want to do a lot of things. I want to start new projects. I like being like out of my depth a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that there's a lot of us that are like that. And then some people who are like, it was cinematography and like, that's what it was. <laughs> like, um, but I, my other question, um, along that, along that line is, um, do you have memories about like consuming art and media or even just, you know, consuming like ideas as, as a young person, um, that maybe you feel are significant. Like, um, do you remember like having any thoughts or feelings about like the way that you would consume things or what things kind of like meant to your creative mind? Hmm. I, I feel like that's also like a part of the creative development process that we don't always talk about. 
yeah, and I don't know that, that I've really processed that in in as thoughtful ways, but um, I can remember. Well, it's kind of like what we were talking about. I my childhood was sort of saturated with art. Yeah, and so it wasn't something so special. Yeah, it, even to the point where I, you know, um, I I would never consider a career in in art. In, in an artistic field because it's just kind of pervasive just in, what there in, is, in life, yeah. right? And so I'll probably choose a career in something yeah. more, um, I don't know, more... More, um, um, like, delineated. I guess. Something. <laughs> that would require more effort to seek out. Yeah. Whereas yeah. art is just everywhere, yeah, yeah. right? And it's it's something I could always participate in. I, this is. I think this was sort of my thinking as a as a child, is it could always be a hobby. It could always be present. So right, nobody can kind of take it away from you. Yeah, and then yeah. when I would, uh, I told you my dad was a lover of opera when, yeah. as a when I was a kid, so he had a subscription to the San Francisco Opera, which is one of the great opera companies. Yeah, and would take one of each of the four siblings to the opera. You know, we'd maybe go once or twice a season. Yeah. And we were pretty little and we were way up in the nosebleed section, yeah. back corner of the top tier yeah. where, you know, the, it's hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So inevitably all of us would fall asleep halfway through yeah. these three hour long operas. And I remember being pretty bored. Yeah. And thinking this is what high art is. Yeah. Boredom. Confusion. It, it's like getting dressed up and fancy oh. to be bored. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so the idea. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Right? I mean, initially it's like, oh, you know, this is pretty. Yeah. But it... Um, That's a lot for a little kid, I would imagine. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. It's a lot for me as an adult sometimes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, and so it, it really turned me off to this notion of of high art as as a singular pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it wasn't really until, um, until college that... Because I told you I'd been singing children's choir um, pretty much my whole... Was that competitive? Like, was it? It was an auditioned choir. It was auditioned, yeah. and it was it was a very structured and and. Yeah. Um, uh, I was in a choir like that as a child too. It's it made a huge impact on me. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a wonderful children's choir. We toured the world and yeah, sang. Wow. I mean, I I don't know if I've heard a children's choir sing the kind of advanced repertoire wow. that we used to sing. That, Amazing, like atonal music as a fourth grader. Crazy, you know, like just. And it, you don't remember like having it. You don't remember like. Like, I remember being in high school and having a teacher program something atonal uh-huh. and feeling like this exists right. and feeling like very taken by it. Like, and uh, and it, the, I remember always having the kind of experience where like in my choirs, you know, there's a, there's frequently one like, you know, theater piece or kind of a fun, like yeah. maybe there's a little choreography. Yep. And I remember like when, you know, the choir director would program like Palestrina or sure. like, you know, I remember just being like, can we please work on that? <laughs> and feeling like so moved by it mm. or anything that just felt like different. Like mm-hmm. it didn't feel like a throwaway piece or it didn't feel like yeah. kind of cheapened. I, I just always remember feeling like, I just want to work on like those things. Cause I feel like I'm getting to like touch like a different world and you know right. and and as a kid you just I had plenty of it maybe this just shows what kind of kid i was but <laughs> you know whereas we think oh well you know most children would 
want to sing the pop songs or the musical theater and they want to, you know, dance and do all these things. Maybe and maybe it's because I was more introverted, but to me it just felt cheesy. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like those things always right. felt kind of cheap to me. Yep. Like I felt embarrassed about it and right. kind of like I'm here to make beautiful <laughs> music and just feeling like serious about it in a way that Yeah. And you felt serious about stuff as a kid. Right. But your siblings and your parents were also serious about stuff, so what maybe wasn't And I think my siblings felt a similar way about yeah. about repertoire. Yeah. Um because we <laughs> We were dressed up in our little choir, wool socks yeah. and, and <laughs> outfits and ties yeah. and ribbons. Well, and then I and, wonder, like, if know, any of your siblings just, had been in, like, my family, uh-huh. would you have been like me and being, like, the one kid in the family that's like, I don't want to sing The Grinch Till Christmas. In the, like, right. I want to do, like, you know, these beautiful, like, Spanish lullaby Christmas sure. songs. Like, right. um, or, or, like, you know, because it's just so interesting, like... You know, you're, we, we're having very similar experiences, except that like my experience includes me feeling like really different, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I think, oh, I don't know. I think it was maybe the environment that the, the choir director set up where, um, different and, um, avant-garde wasn't just weird. It wasn't, it was he he was a very kind of touchy feely yeah, sort of like let us like that too. Yeah. feel music as a joyful yeah. pursuit kind of like. But did you feel like all the other kids in the choir were like buying that, or did you feel like there were some uh, like two tears? They really? bought it. Yeah. Oh yes. Because I I was always buying stuff like that, but uh-huh. always kind of feeling like maybe there were a couple kids in the choir who were with like felt like me, and the, everyone else just being like, come I, on, let us sing like Love Potion Number Nine. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it was the magic of this choir director, yeah. I think, but I he, that. he just had a way of making, I assume nearly every child in that, in that choir feel like we were changing the world cool. by changing ourselves and Gosh. our, you know, Have our you exposure ever to about cultures. Like trying to, I mean, I would be so curious to know what's going on with like other kids that you were in that choir with, like, cause presumably mm-hmm. very few of them are still doing like music professionally. Yeah. Actually quite a few of them have gone on in some, to some degree or another, uh, to do, um, music, music education or yeah. voice teaching. A lot of voice teachers, a few conductors, but not, not so many. Um, but several have stayed involved in that or- children's really, choir organization. So they mostly are just kind of still doing music. Many, although yeah. I'm not in touch with everybody. I, I would be so curious to know, like, of the graduates of this mm-hmm. program, like, mm-hmm. what do the non-musicians, like, what would they say about it? Like, how does it affect their, like, non-music careers and lives? Well, like, um, my my older brother, who's a law professor. Yeah. And, and doesn't pursue music at this point in his life. Um, I think he would, he would say that, it was a f- completely formative experience as yeah. a kid. Cool. Eye-opening, confidence-building, and just kind of lets you experience beauty, right? Yeah. And I think for anyone who's been through those kinds of experiences yeah. as a child in groups like that, um, it, uh, it opens your heart to yeah. music, just um, the, the power of music to kind yeah. of soften you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the kind of thing that once you've kind of experienced it, you you don't want a life without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't want to sing potion number nine. Yes. Because you, know, you want your heart to, right. be, to be softened right. in these ways. 
Yes. Enlarged, you know? Yes. And love potion number nine just feels like time away from that <laughs> feeling. Yeah. Does that make us uppity? I don't know. I think it but... just, to me, it just feels like, to me, it feels like music and art was fulfilling a need for me that maybe there were some kids that didn't have that need, mm -hmm. which it's not to say like there's a, you know, a, I, I just feel like that was a, like a need and I really needed it at school because there was no way it was happening at home. Um, so I think, yeah, maybe we all have kind of different levels of like, this time feels precious. Like this time that we're in choir together mm -hmm. and choir is such a special one, as you know, because all like these, so many voices kind of coming together as like one instrument is just something that you, you cannot replicate by yourself. Yeah. So yeah. I think feeling like this time we have as a choir is like a sacred time and let's not waste it. As sacred as the concept of harmony can be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, even though I grew up with that kind of a passion for um, uh, creating world peace through singing together, yeah, yeah. you know, from, from that choir director, um, it was still this kind of, well, that's just kind of a musical cool. experience that anyone could have and it's yeah. not a career kind of thing. So right. it wasn't until I was in college kind of at the end of college and I was majoring something else um, or intending to pursue something else that I thought, huh, that mentor I have here in college, he does this a little differently. He doesn't ever talk about yeah. let's hold hands and world peace yeah. or change your hearts through yeah. music. He's analytical and intellectual yes. about the approach to music. Yeah. And that felt like a career to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so the next thing I was going to ask is like, talk me through like the, you know, the time in your life, like maybe including high school, um, where you started to maybe get more serious about music and kind of get um, just better at it. And then, so you didn't consider music as your first major. You didn't consider no. music as a career. You know, when I was in high school, my senior year, I, I directed our high school acapella yeah. group. I assumed you were like getting really good at it where like maybe people in your life are like, Reed, you could major in this. And then you, so I want to know about that. And then, and then between starting college in a different major, mm -hmm. what, yeah, just what happened? Well, yeah, I, I just had many interests in high school. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, I didn't really take choir in high school hardly at all. Okay. Because I was taking AP art yeah. and, um, Mandarin Chinese yeah. and all of my, other classes, you know, um, and uh, so I really didn't have time for music. Yeah. In were the you school. still in the choir? You were still in the choir, though. I was in my youth choir okay. in the afternoons. Okay. But in yeah. in school, it it wasn't as oh. as intensive. And you an weren't experience. taking piano lessons, but you played cello, yeah. right? That was something self taught after I okay I, okay in college okay for fun. So you weren't doing that much music when at the time that you like were finishing high school, but you were directing the acapella group. I was directing the acapella group and, uh, singing in, um, a, uh, alumni group of, uh, from that children's course. Cool. So there was quite a bit of music happening. Yeah. Um, but I think there was this sense of getting ready for college and yeah. going to choose a career. And you didn't consider music at that point ever. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Cause when I went to go check out colleges, yeah. you know, kind of go with my dad around the East coast, looking at different schools. And even when I went to check out the school where I ended up going at Stanford, 
I remember <laughs> we went to campus and, you know, kind of walked around, but I remember like looking for the music building. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where's that? Yeah. And still, still not thinking I would major in music, but for some reason my heart yeah. was like, that's going to be important for me to, to know. Yeah. Cause in some way I'm going to uh, seek it out. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, when I started college, I thought engineering might be yeah. what I want to do. Cause I love math. I love drawing buildings. Yeah. And, um, did, um, did you, was it unusual in your family for you to go to an Ivy league school? Like, was that no. like a, a, you come from a, a group of people who go to Ivy league schools? Many of us did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't like a, that wasn't like a separate kind of pressure that you were dealing with. Um, if, I didn't feel pressure. Yeah. It wasn't external pressure necessarily. Yeah. But it was just kind of like we, it, in yeah. the same way that in my family, it's like we go to college yeah. and your family, it's like we maybe go to Stanford. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So you started out school and you were thinking like, you just really weren't sure what you wanted to do. And that's one of the reasons why I chose Stanford is because there was so much strength in disciplines across the university. And, yeah. And uh, I wanted to really explore and yeah. see where my talents and passions might be. Um, and it wasn't until after my freshman year and after I came back from a mission that I... Um, you went to China? Taiwan. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That um, And I had studied Chinese for about five years previous to that. Yeah. And so then I, after two years in Taiwan, I came back and... <laughs> you know how we take these um, career aptitude tests, yeah. you know, to figure out where uh, what you might major in. My version of that was to go through the course catalog for our university, yeah, and just kind of circle every class I was I would yeah. love to take before I graduate, yeah, and just see where they fall. Yeah. So about a third of those ended up in music, and about a third ended up in Chinese, yeah, or Asian languages more broadly, and then a third were scattered, you know, across yeah. the university. And so I thought that's that says something, yeah. And if if the value of education is um, is not just, you know, to find a job someday, but if, if it's truly to kind of pursue your interests and passion, yeah, maybe this is telling me something. Yeah. And uh, so I chose Did, Chinese. So, okay, cool. Did yeah. that thing you just said of like, if the education, like right. that whole sentence, was that a thing that felt like an if to you? Like, mm -hmm. Did you did you have to wrestle with that whole idea? Yeah, my you know my parents, um, especially my dad, has a sort of a central tenet that education is a, um, a commodity. Yeah, it's something that you consume. Yeah, uh, for life's enjoyment. Yeah, and wow. and so when you go to college or or whatever schooling you pursue. It's to work on you as a person, yeah, and and that. set you up for a life of learning. Yeah, right? it's not like this kind of capitalist mentality of like you go to college in order to like, well, build the economy. I mean, that would that would this would be the reason to go to a liberal arts college and to pursue yeah. a liberal arts education, which is what I was doing. Yeah, if you know, if I was pursuing a technical education, it might be different. But even in a technical school, yeah. you're still getting those skills, right? Yeah. And learning how to learn and yeah. so forth. So, so he, that was ingrained in me That's really at a young cool. age. What kind of law does your dad practice? Uh, he does, um, 
Oh, finance and tax law. That's so interesting that someone uh -huh. who's doing something so <laughs> that yes <laughs> can think about education in this like yeah. beautiful, artful, expansive way. Yep. That's really, I mean, that's really, that feels like something kind of significant to me. You know, it's sort of a generational thing. Um, my parents used to talk a lot about their parents coming out of the Great Depression and hoping for better life and more opportunities for yeah. their generation. And, and I think for my dad, he was just one of these industrious people who yeah. had little coming out, out of his, um, had little in terms of, uh, you know, financial and physical yeah. uh, means going to college, but he worked really hard and, and finished college in three years did and majored in economics because that was, well, maybe an interest, but also something that seemed to be a lucrative yeah, field. Yeah, like applicable, yeah. Where he could get a job and kind of make something for his family. Yeah. Go to law school because that sounded like a good a career. Good, yeah, yeah. And so I think I think he's tickled that his, wow. his, um, his children, children yeah. like me, have gone on and Get to choose something you love. Yeah. Yep. That's so amazing. Because I think, like, my dad... Doesn't understand what I do okay. at all, <laughs> at all, at all, at all, um, and has like maybe kind of a disdain about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting because I think you know, yeah, it just it's just I don't know. It's such a it's such a good illustration of the ways that like the things we do, like may or definitely may not have anything to do with like what are like you know what's going on inside. Yeah. Because our dads are doing like similar stuff, but sound like very, very different men. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. I mean, my dad, you know, had a subscription to the opera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> As a lawyer, Th those kinds of things. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It's cool. That's it, cool. It gave me the freedom to, to really choose. But I do remember, you know, having that sit down with my parents and saying, hey, I think I want a double major in Chinese and music. Yeah. What was it like? What do you think about that? Yeah. What did they say? <laughs> well, uh, well, my dad said, that sounds great to me. You know, oh, and, I love it so much. And my mom said, well, she's kind of the more practically minded yeah. in, in this way. So long as you're one of the best yeah. in what you choose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to work really hard and, yeah. you know, but, um, you could, so long as you work yeah. that hard and, and have the talent in it, then you could make anything so work. did you feel like you were one of the best? Did I? Yeah. Uh, at that point? Yeah. In music? The irony is no. I, yeah. I, I really, I was a vocal performance major. Yeah. Um, and actually, a little tidbit. The reason why I even declared the music major, as I said, it was always kind of a hobby thing. Yeah. Secondary. Um, is because music majors get cheaper lessons. Oh, right. Like the yeah. fee, the course fee was yeah. half yeah. if you're a music major. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm just going to declare the major and then I'll drop it right before I graduate. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And then <laughs> I sneaky. took all these classes because they were interesting to <laughs> yeah. me. Loved my opera scenes and choir and That's everything. creative thinking too, though. Well, there like, you go. Yeah, I, I working think. Working the system. I mean, just seeing, like having an idea and seeing like, it's resourceful. Yeah. Yeah, which is it's creative. Well, college can be a lot of money, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But 
Um, and Chinese was always the plan. I wanted to te- become a professor of Chinese literature. Wow. Um, but it, the, so the major stuck and I was like, I might as well just double major. Yeah. And, um, wow. at that point I was vocal performance, but, um, you know, I, I knew I had skills and, and probably better musicianship than I had vocal, raw vocal talent. Um, which is why it was always just going to be for fun. Yeah. And, and I didn't see myself as a great talent. Yeah. Um, until I <laughs> finished my first master's in East Asian studies okay. in Chinese literature. <laughs> and I, and I, as I was uh, doing, writing my thesis for that master's degree at Stanford, I um, thought, you know, I don't love spending all my f- extra time with books. Yeah. Yeah. In this kind of antisocial way. Yeah. Even as an introvert. Yeah. Right? It's just, it, it didn't feel holistic to me. Yeah. And Interesting. Um, I had this mentor, a conductor that I just looked up to so much. And I saw his, um, his job to be so fulfilling in. He was a professor so there. So many ways. Yeah. The yeah. choral professor there. And um, so I started taking conducting lessons from yeah. him and said, Hey, how would I go about becoming, how do you become a conductor? How does anybody yeah. do that? Right. Yeah. And he kind of laid out some steps that I could take, uh, including starting to take some lessons. So after yeah. two months of lessons, I was applying for graduate school. Yeah. Having never conducted a choir oh before. Um, That's crazy. But I think because of all my really uh, extensive choral background, yeah. I was that kid, you know, in choir. <laughs> I'm that kid who's, you know, we're rehearsing and I'm hearing like, oh, the soprano's just saying wrong note. Yeah. Like, oh, that rhythm was wrong on the basis yeah. and I'm a tenor, right? Yeah, yeah. And when everybody else is focusing <laughs> on their part and yeah. getting, or they're like clued out, you know, they're yeah. not listening. If, totally. But and I'm, you're listening to the whole I'm room. Like, is yeah. the conductor going to fix that thing that's not, not yes, right? Yes, I was that person as well. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I was that kid. <laughs> Sorry, anyone who's listening who's not been through any of these music classes. <laughs> no, go for it. I but, love it so much. There's this class called Oral Skills, yeah. where you learn how to do dictation right down yeah. on sheet music, yeah. what you're hearing. <laughs> and I, I was that kid in Oral Skills classes in college that would be in the in the back of the room with my buddy and uh, the TA who was from China, I think, um, would had written some kind of four-part dictation for soprano, yeah. alto, tenor, bass. And we were supposed to write down the soprano line, the bass line. And we got like five hearings, right? Yeah. And so first hearing, I wrote down the soprano, alto, soprano and bass parts. Second yeah. hearing, I'm writing the alto tenor parts. Yeah. You know, because I'm just bored. I'm done. Yeah. And then the third hearing, I raise my hand. And I say, did you mean to write parallel fifths between the alto and the bass? <laughs> and, you know, just like, I was... Insufferable. Insufferable. Totally. But, I definitely didn't do that. But that but. was my mind. I was, you know, kind of high achieving in those yeah, ways. I love it. Um... And maybe a thorn in the side of my, my TA. Oh, it just, it's just, I don't know though. I love it. I, I feel like I long for a student like that. Like I'd love to have a student like that. <laughs> to be like, did you realize what you yes, wrote? Yes. Like I, rules? <laughs> I think I would. I mean, I just think it says so much about like, I don't know. I, I just, I find like people's kind of individual personalities just sort of objectively thrilling. I mm-hmm. think, um, this conducting teacher that was your mentor. Yeah. So he was a mentor before you had declared the major. Right. Why? Like, why? What? What? 
why was he aware of you? Like, you know, yeah. I'm I'm assuming you stood out in some kind of way, even though you weren't in the major, you hadn't been doing conducting. Well, at that point, I had chosen the major. I had chosen oh, that's the, right. you the were, performance, well, performance major. Right. Um, and but not conducting. No. And I had been singing in his choir for a few years. I actually didn't get into the choir my freshman year. Yeah. And then my sophomore year, I did. But um, So I'd been singing in his choir for a number of years. Um, but beyond that, at Stanford, the full-time faculty members were assigned as, as the academic advisors oh, cool. for a cohort cool. of about maybe 10 students. Okay. And I was one of his advisees. Okay, okay. So he, but he, <laughs> you know, I was a music major, but I had this weird double major with Chinese. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of more my, my focus. Well, yeah, it sounds time. like that, which is, that's kind of why I was wondering, like. And so I think he always kind of, every semester you have to have your, at least at Stanford, you have to have your, um, uh, your course plan yeah. for the semester signed off by your advisor that yeah. you've checked in. And he would look at my courses and go, I have no idea what half of these are. The music ones, I got it. Yeah, it looks like you're on track. Yeah. Chinese, you know, mm, good luck yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, kind of with a smirk and, a, and um, yeah. send me on my way. Um, but when you came to him and said, like, I maybe kind of want to do something else, was he like, really? Or was he like, I've been waiting for you to, like, have this realization? Yeah. Or I've never had that conversation with him, but I, the impression I got was, um, well, okay. You know, yeah. most, most students at Stanford don't go on to become professional musicians. Yeah. Most of them become doctors and lawyers right. and engineers. Yeah. And it's kind of why I was wondering if you had felt like any sort of pressure, like, I mean, but uh, yeah, cause it seems like in order to get into Stanford, you have to have good grades, period, sure, like course. in all of your, yeah. Of course. And you have plenty of options and all kinds of things you could do. And yeah. I was wondering if like choosing music was like a really kind of a thing or. You know, in, in a, both of my majors ended up being really wonderful learning environments because the class sizes were so small. Yeah. Both were very small departments and the average class, I would say not including private lessons was probably. Uh, in Chinese, was probably five students. Amazing, yeah. And and so in you just music got, maybe I mean, it's a study ten? in pedagogy too. Yeah, you yeah. really get to know the professors, yeah. and it's really individualized, kind of personalized um, instruction. So, I really enjoyed that in my majors. Yeah. Um, so you got a second master's in yeah. conducting. Conducting, yeah. yeah. And then what happened? Um, so yeah, after I finished the first one at Stanford, I, I went to the Eastman school of music in New York for that master's and then decided, you know, at, at East juncture, um, one of the big questions in con conducting is, well, are you going to go teach in the public schools? Yeah. You know, and one of the great ironies is even with a master's in conducting from the Eastman <laughs> school of music, I wasn't certified to teach in public schools. Yeah. Crazy. So I could have done yeah. that. I could have. Um, sought out certification yeah. wherever I wanted to settle, but um, but that just never felt like a good fit. And you know, the, with a lot of arts careers, it, um, people assume there's sort of one kind of track, right? There's yeah. like one um, must do yeah. Uh, yeah. path. Yeah. And with conducting, most people say, well, if you want to teach at a college, then you really need to do your music bachelor's degree and maybe teach in the private school, in the public schools or private schools for three yeah. to five years and maybe get a master's and then, or maybe teach after your master's. Yeah. And then 
apply. Maybe get the doctorate later. Get your doctorate yeah. and then, <clears throat> then apply for collegiate jobs. But I just never felt called to teach private, uh, teach um, secondary schools. Yeah. And um, so at each of those junctures, I considered it, um, but just felt like I need to keep going. Yeah. And so I went straight on uh, from that first master to the second and then to doctorate. And then cool. here I am in Utah yeah. teaching. And you're, you started at UVU. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you had already lived here before I moved here. So yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, what do you want to say anything about like what your experience has been like? Like just anything kind of like, what do you want to tell about? Like, what's the next thing? I have other questions, but experiences like in regards I don't know, to like, just how do you feel about like how your career has like, just what you're doing? How do you feel about what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like we're going to dive into a <laughs> midlife crisis moment. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, you know, one of the hmm, uh, one of the reasons I chose conducting was because I saw it as a career that would always stretch me. Yeah. Or it could always stretch yeah. me, I guess that's the way to put it. There's always going to be new challenges and opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Versus Chinese literature and Chinese yeah. language where I would be teaching maybe from the same textbook, yeah. the same vocabulary and grammar right. principles and literature every semester or yeah. nearly. With music, I choose the repertoire and yeah. it can be something different each semester. Yeah. It can challenge you. It can... Yeah. In fact, um, when I first chose conducting, I set a goal for myself. I'm not sure where this came from. Yeah. But I did. And I told myself I was not going to repeat a piece. Wow. For the first 10 years of my career. Amazing. Yeah. And I pretty much stuck to that. Yeah. How long have you been? When did you finish your doctorate? I finished my doctorate in 2000. Well, while I was teaching at UVU, but um, I started teaching here in 2010. Okay. Okay. And I'd been doing, I had conducted in some form for about five years before that. Cool. So... Uh, this is my 16th year, I guess, of, wow. of conducting. And those first, actually, even up to today, yeah, there are a few pieces I've done because somebody asked at me right. to do it for some reason or, yeah. or whatever, collaboration that with another ensemble. But for the, or <laughs> maybe a Christmas piece that, yeah, let's that's just be like honest. Yeah, especially. There's only so many. Yeah, right, right, right. Wonderful um, arrangements of a given right, tune or something. Right. But for the most part, I, I've really stuck to that rule even to today. That's awesome. And then the choral field, the repertoire is vast. So much. Yeah. Yeah. That you really don't have to go back to a piece yeah. ever. Yeah. Yeah. And you could still so be cool. satisfied. And someday maybe I will. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean. In fact, you know, at this juncture, since you asked, I, I'm starting to feel sentimental about experiences with certain pieces that yeah. I would just like to live with again. Yeah. Cause I always feel a certain, yeah. Like saying goodbye to an old friend when I totally. put a, would have put, put a piece to the side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like you got to know like all of the ins and outs mm-hmm. and like this, you got to appreciate like this rest and like, sure. yeah. yeah, I totally feel like that about music. And and there are certain songs I, I might want to come back to soon, but, but, in the interest of self gratification as a teacher, and and just as a as a living breathing person that wants to continue exploring yeah. the world, the world of music, uh, I think I'll keep going. Yeah, and just choose new things. Yeah, I love that. 
I love that. Well, I'd love to hear you talk about two things. Um, one being your experience composing, because you do so much of that now. We mm-hmm. haven't really talked about it. And the other being how you have managed to marry your love of music and Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are related topics. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I talk about them in however, however you want. Oh, man. What would you like to say? There's so much to say. Say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, hmm. Because you really have, like, you have found a way to have both of these things be really big things in your life. Yeah. Well, to stay on theme, when I when I was in college and people would ask me, you're saying, was there pressure? I didn't yeah. feel so much pressure in terms of what I chose to major in, but there was certainly the sense of, well, what are you going to do with that major, yeah. right? Yeah. And as a double major in Chinese and music, people were always asking me. Yeah. So what kind of career, what does that career look like? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and kind of, and just laughed to myself that, yeah. I don't know, we'll see. Yeah. Um, but in truth, I have really found uh, a niche and, and forged a career where those two fields have intersected a lot. Um, and part of that is composition. Yeah. Um, and part of it is in my teaching. I, I do a lot of guest teaching in Asia. It seems like every... Uh, Every other year, maybe I'm in China or Taiwan or something, um, yeah. doing some kind of guest conducting or teaching. Um, in recent, at first, it was just Chinese um, that I was interested in Chinese folk songs, and yeah. and given my specialty it, with the Chinese language um, and culture, I felt um, like I had a um, opportunity to bridge a gap between these Western audiences and choirs. Yeah. And um, this really rich culture that uh, hardly any repertoire is available for, for yeah. Western choirs to do, in large part because of the language barrier. Right. And so, because I felt like I had some skills there to be able to bridge the gap, I spent quite a bit of time arranging fo- Chinese folk yeah. songs and that kind of thing. Um, because for me, going back to my childhood, um, you know, while I had friends that, you know, would spend their Saturday mornings watching baseball with yeah. their dad or something. Yeah. Um, I would go over to my friend's house and we would wrap dumplings. Yeah. Right. Cause about you, a th- you had a, a best friend that was Chinese. Yeah. About okay. a third of our, our, our town was Chinese. Okay. It was Asian American. Okay. I had lots of Asian American friends and many of them were Chinese American. Yeah. Um, and so it was just very normal for me to, do those kinds of things and go to lantern festivals. Yeah. And wow. I, I was fully immersed. So that by yeah. the time Chinese became an, um, a course offering in high school, it just seemed like a natural thing. Yeah. And, uh, I was one of the only white kids kind of in the class, Yeah. but I, I, it felt natural. Um, do you want to tell the listeners about your more recent trip and your studies? Yeah. So the Chinese, uh, in more recent years, the, my interest in Chinese has turned more towards Buddhism. Um, and I spent uh, about five months living in Buddhist monasteries in yeah. Taiwan so cool. as a Fulbright scholar um, in 2017, 2018. Um, this was just a really wonderful opportunity to take sabbatical from my normal teaching duties for a semester and go um, research something um, special. And I had been to this monastery in the southern Taiwan um, just after my first master's in 2006. 
I, I did a monastic um, life camp where cool. I learned meditation techniques and cool. Buddhist, uh, Buddhist principles and just kind of the lifestyle of, of um, Buddhist monastics, uh, monks and nuns. Um, but it was just a month and ended yeah. with a really intensive silent meditation week yeah. where you don't talk for a whole week and you just yeah. meditate all day. And it, when I had that experience, um, I encountered a lot of chanting. There was a lot of music yeah. that I had no idea existed. Yeah. And there's very little um, English scholarship about those traditions. Yeah. And so I've always had that in the back of my head. I I need to go back and and learn more and research and yeah and help people in the West understand yeah. that that chant. You know, we all know about Gregorian chant and yeah. and as a basis for Western music uh, history. <laughs> yes. Period. Right? Period. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. Um, but but there are other chant traditions that are just as old and just as rich, um, yeah. both in China, I mean, throughout Asia, really, yeah. and, and South Asia. Um, so this was one window into, into those um, traditions. That's so cool. little ethnomusicology project. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's part of my Renaissance man kind of yeah. fulfillment. That, I love it. I think it's incredible. So, um, and for me also, it was something of a religious, uh, spiritual pursuit too, in in finding um, another dimension of faith beyond my the faith of my childhood that I that because of my sexuality I felt edged out of yeah and so it it uh, I was already kind of seeking meaning in life and I think having exposure to other ways of of believing uh, was was something I was interested in yeah. And so it was both personal and yeah. intellectual and academic. I was going to ask you about that because I, I know you to be a really faithful person. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wanted to ask about like how, I don't know, just if you have like thoughts and kind of, I don't know, I feel like we have all kinds of different reasons for having the interests that we have and kind of the kind of personal missions that we're on as people, like yeah. the things we're trying to solve or discover. And if you have any... Like, you know, just insight that you want to share about, like, you know, faith and creativity or just like, is there anything that you feel like you'd like to say about any of that? Maybe it's just my my station in life right now. <laughs> you get to a certain age. I can't believe I'm using that term, that yeah. phrase. You get to a certain age. Am I that old to even say that? But um, but you get to a certain age where you, f- where you start to just kind of look around and, and think... Um, you know, where's the meaning in all of this? Yeah. Like, what, you know, what, what's not just like, what is my life purpose as if I, I have one purpose, but, but where, you know, what's, what's the meaning? And, um, and for me, I think even, even that first time going to that monastery to seek something new, I was in part looking for meaning, right? Yeah. To, to find new ways of perceiving my life experience yeah. and um, to find depth. Because um, I've always been somebody who's interested in symbolism. And, yeah. And this is clear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Deep understanding of, of nuances of, of just the way things are. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of ironic because even going to the monastery and learning meditation, I came to it with that mindset where I'm going in trying to analyze it. 
Yeah. Try to pick it apart and find meaning and yeah. symbolism and and richness and comparing it and juxtaposing it with my Christian background yeah. and finding overlap. And anyway, it, and there was a lot of richness there yeah. that we could spend hours talking about. Yeah. Um, but, but the irony at this point for me is that the more, um, that, that first exposure to Buddhism was really for me, um, that kind of, uh, integration with my own personal faith and, and seeking out meditation techniques that would help me, um, just find my, understand yeah. my place in the world. And the more since that I've, I've been back to that monastery and the more I've, I've studied Buddhism, um, it's really helped me to, through some of the principles, kind of, uh, find a, tra a different mindset. Yeah. And, and by that, I mean, I don't know how many of the listeners would be familiar with, um, principles like, um, non-attachment or emptiness or, yeah. or impermanence, but, um, yeah, just say whatever you want. It, the listeners can Google and yeah, good luck. We're, we're, I mean, I just want to know what's going on in your brain. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like whatever, what I'd love to hear what you're wanting to say. Um, today, uh, today's the Super Bowl. Yeah. Right? Are you oh going to watch gosh. it? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even, I forgot. Okay, so today's, here's the thing. You say today's I, the Super Bowl. I'm not, I'm not a sports fan this by any stretch of the imagination, but so I watched funny. the Super Bowl. Yeah, okay. Right? Because, and why is that? Like, I, I, wouldn't, I would not typically just watch football because it does nothing for me. Yeah. But I love the Super Bowl. <laughs> I love snacks. Because there's... Yeah. Okay. You love. <laughs> I don't think it's the same thing, but you mean no, you like I mean eating the Super snacks. Bowl snacks? Got it. Got I it. I mean the food culture around the Super Bowl. That's a thing. It, yeah. That's a big thing. Yeah. And maybe you like the commercials. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. There's some art in there. Yes, and the halftime show, of course. Of but course. Listen, I just didn't know the Super Bowls today. If I'm being totally okay. honest. Super Bowls today. It's okay. Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and and you know I'm planning to that watch. Is so funny. Um. And the reason I, I do is because they're, it's fun to watch people be so passionate. Yes. Right. And to yeah. like, the stakes are so high Yeah. and to have such great like meaning in this moment. That's fun to, to watch. Absolutely. Um, and it's like, uh, here in Utah, we have the Utah jazz, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been, but a couple of years ago, my husband and I went to the jazz and it was so stale. Yeah. Because it was just a kind of an average season game yeah. and they weren't that great a couple huh. years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and they also didn't play with any hustle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, kind of boring. Like nobody's yeah. going after the ball. Yeah. They're just phoning it in. And, yeah. um, and sometimes a, a lot of life can feel like that until you get to the championship. Yeah. In which case I'm interested because there's this meaning. Well, anyway, I, I draw this analogy just because, this idea that I'm trying to find meaning in things, get deeper, and um, because that's where the value is, like a search yeah. for meaning. So, sorry, go ahead. Well, so with Buddhism, yeah, I, I kind of found I'd been in that headspace where I'm just like I'm looking for deeper meaning. Yes, and yeah. The, and one of the main tenets of Buddhism is, is this sense of emptiness. Yeah. Of. Not attaching. There, there is no. I mean. Take away, strip away all the meaning you're ascribing to things. Yeah. Because it's all gonna change. Yeah. 
impermanent. Like yeah. it's always, like you said at the beginning, yeah. things are always changing yeah. and people are changing. And, um, and if you really kind of do that, then, which is so hard for an analytical, analytical mind yeah. like ours that just want yeah. to get like what a podcast Problem is solved. like this. Yeah. We're, we're like <laughs> trying to get into the yeah, topic and like what richness can we find in these nuggets of life? Yes, I love it so much. And yet the whole idea, one of the of the ideas of Buddhism is to strip all that away yeah. and just let be. Yeah, yeah. And not try to to yeah. you know, juice the right <laughs> this yeah. moment. But, yes. But just kind of let it be what it's going to be. Yeah. And um, so I'm kind of entering a phase of life in my career and life that where I'm that is the pursuit to yeah. to just enjoy what is at hand. And not always have to make it about something. These projects and these more, greater depth. More than it needs to be. Yeah. I love that. Hmm. That's a beautiful answer. Um, I Sorry, to that ask was you, kind of curvy. No, no. Read. <laughs> we went I through many live, paths there. <laughs> I live for this. I live for it. That's so why when people ask me, like, what is the podcast about? I'm like, mm. yeah. like <laughs> we'll see. Like, mm. I never want to put it in a box because like, sure. it's like. I'm pretty sure that we just went through the Super Bowl and <laughs> impermanence all in the same sentence. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was laughing about. Sorry like, about this that. is so funny to me. Like, that's today. I love it so much. I did actually, I'm, I'm, um. I'm friends a little bit with a, a, this great voice teacher who teaches a lot of famous people. And mm-hmm. she's, she teaches Miley Cyrus, who's performing at the tailgate. Mm-hmm. So I had heard, I had heard that, but uh, yeah, but I was <laughs> not attaching to the idea that the Super Bowl was today, which is it's telling a few things about me probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but attachment is an interesting idea. And in, as artists, because we attach to, identities of who we are yes. and what the art is what that we create. Pe- we attach to like each piece of art. Totally. Like it's a person. And the, and if, yes. And <laughs> as if it somehow reflects us in this really yeah. important way when it doesn't have to. Oh my gosh. Okay. Since you said that, I was going to ask you about pedagogy, but mm. the podcast is called artifice because it's a cool word. And because <laughs> I deeply believe that like the ways that we as artists relate to our art is automatically like unknown misunderstood by others like it's so unique and it's so personal so I don't think of it as like an intentional like an intentional artifice like I said mostly I just think it's a cool word but also I feel like yeah the we we unless we like specifically talk about it um we wouldn't understand how someone else like relates to their specific art and the way that like how did you put it? Like, it's part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like this is a little bit me and I'm a little bit it. Like you and, cut off your hand and there's your piece of art. Like, right. It's like, like, and a that's, part of you. yes. Like, and there's something about that. That's very, like very weird and very mm-hmm. kind of unknowable. Um, do you, do you, so, I mean, you can talk about it, it, that concept, like in kind of how you're dealing with that, with this new kind of thing, this, these new things that you're thinking about, but mm-hmm. what, what are your thoughts about, like, what's your experience with that? Um, like know, the relationship you have to your art oh and man, the that's stuff a big that topic, it's yeah. kind of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but like the, yeah, though, I mean, and I would include like the stuff you make and also this kind of like ephemeral, like in the moment you're conducting, like yeah. how, what's your relationship to those things? Okay. Um, I might frame it this way. 
well, to, to come back to the theme as a kid, not wanting to be seen and then to be on stage and to need to be seen. Yeah. Um, and the stage anxiety, the, um, what do you call it? Performance, um, anxiety yeah, that so fright, many of us yeah. feel stage fright. Yeah. For me, the, the way I overcame that is through the way I think about what you just are asking my relationship to the music. Yeah. And it's easier for me as a conductor because I'm not the one opening my mouth. Yeah. Right. At least in my mind. Um, so that even though I'm the one kind of up front central and kind of taking facilitating the facilitating. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I like to think of the conductor ideally as more of a window. Yeah. Totally transparent to let the art come through. Um, the more you do your your research and the and the more you have the technical skills to communicate subtle concepts, yeah. the better you can be at that. Which is why we, you know, work so hard at our art forms. But um, and I think that's true across all this yeah. art disciplines. But to become this kind of transparent for totally. for the composer, you know, the intent behind a piece of music, which is different when you're the composer of the piece. Yes, and it we is. can talk about that in a second. Yeah. But but when it's somebody else's. Um, composition it makes it very comfortable for me to take on a transparent role Mm -hmm. um and in the way that you're kind of like acting right um and for me with stage fright i the way i get over that is to think about the music i do the exact same thing it's like it's all about the music if any of my students were here they'd be like that's the same lecture that emily gives us like if you don't make it about you like you're not Mm -hmm. there like you're just you're like the 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 conduit right that the music that the art is coming through and it's about like the Mm -hmm. art reaching the listener right and you're you're not part of that equation really you're the violin, yeah. right? And and yes, yeah. you're playing the violin, as it were, because yeah. you're the one making the music. And when you're the, a vocalist, even more, yeah. it's, it's more Well, and difficult. I feel that, I mean, for me, when I'm singing like jazz, when I'm singing like standards, mm-hmm. or when I'm singing even, you know, party band stuff, yeah. that's really easy for me, even though that's so, that's such a performy thing. Yeah. And, and I do sometimes like, I mean, sometimes I do feel kind of awkward in sequence in front of a crowd Mm -hmm. of very drunk people, you know, like that's maybe a little different, like art, eh, it's part of this equation, but it's not like, it's not the same as like, you know, people really listening. I can't quite rely on the same. I have to shift it and be like, it's about facilitating joy for these people. (laughs) Even if like, they're not thinking about the music. That goes back to our, uh, our conversation (laughs) about, um, uh, love potion. I think, you know, it's like the way we, we, it totally does. We approach the music. Yes, exactly. Yep. But I but I do find that when I'm singing my original music, like as a soloist with a band, mm-hmm. it is different because the composer is me. Yeah. And, and that gives me a different kind of heebie-jeebies. It's a different vibe. Yeah. Right? Because you have to speak from a personal space. Yeah. Or you're channeling yourself. Yeah. Even if you're not putting your emotions in it in that moment. Yeah. Um, so you feel like, yeah, you feel like when kind of you're performing the art or you're, you're you know, participating in the art in a way that, that you feel like lets the art be kind of the best, you're not really there. Like you're kind of, or, or you're yeah. there like totally in service to not yourself at all. Ideally. Yeah. Ideally you're there and, and you could be as um, passive or as active as the music requires. And that doesn't, and so, 
you know, and by that I mean, you know, you might be conducting a piece that's um, very still. Yeah. It's very um, sustained. Yeah. And um, solemn. Yeah. Um, you don't need to move much. That was alliterative. I'm giving myself yeah. props for three S's. I liked it. Yeah. Still <laughs> solemn and sustained. Yeah. But you might have a, a choral piece like that. And um, in which case, as I teach my conducting students, like you need to be those right. things. Right. And if, if you were drawing attention to yourself in other ways, it wouldn't be the music. Right. And uh, But you'll have other pieces where, hey, if you're doing a gospel number, you better move your body. Totally. Right? Yeah. And uh, and if you're walking around the stage, hey, I'm okay with it. In fact, if you weren't, it would feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And so even though you're taking on more of an extroverted essence, yeah, like you're still, it's still the in music. service of the music, exactly. Yeah. And so even still, so I can I've somehow been able to take on more exuberance and kind of charisma on stage than I normally would like yeah. to, because it's the music. You're you're literally the most charming person oh my gosh. that ever lived. <laughs> so uh. I don't know. <laughs> I know that like that if, there, if there was like a hundred people here who know you and I was like, Reed's the most charming person, like at least 98 of those people would be like, yes. Yikes. And then I would <laughs> blush and go hide in a corner. <laughs> and you would be really charming while doing it probably. Mm. <laughs> well, um, I wait, I had another question. Oh, do, okay. So, so you're kind of not yourself while you're doing art, but, um, do you feel, um, do you feel as though people know you, like understand you the best when they know, when they understand how you do art? Uh, like State that again. Like do, like, do you feel like in order for someone to like really know you well, uh -huh. like for you to feel like you have kind of like emotional intimacy and trust uh -huh. with someone mm -hmm. that they need to understand who you are as an artist? Yeah. They would need to understand the motivation behind yeah. how I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Because I don't think someone just... Well, I don't know. As, as I'm saying this, I, maybe I'm disagreeing with myself. Yeah, I always feel like it's such but, a... Go, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say, I, I want to say that I'm, I'm able to put up a front. You know, you put on your happy face, as it were, yeah. for a given rehearsal or whatever. But, ooh, here's one way to put it. Okay, okay. Okay, I used to teach a community choir yeah. that um, was on Wednesday nights, two and a half hours long. Um, which is a pretty long time for a, a single evening uh, with, you know, up to a hundred adults. Yeah. People who just love singing. They're not necessarily professional musicians, although some are. Um, and they come together for the love of it. Um, but here, but I'm hired to come in and, and direct this choir. Inevitably, the beginning of every Wednesday night rehearsal, the mood in the room there's, there's some like chatter room because yeah. there's excited, you know, yeah. happy to see each other, stay at home moms who are just yeah. love to see another adult and connect. Right. Th totally. That kind of energy. Yeah. But most of the room is just tired. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm tired. Yeah. Cause I've fin just finished a whole day of teaching. Yeah. Right? And yet here we go. Yeah. And I put on energy, which is yes. hundred percent a mask. Uh huh. Right. Yes. And I know it very well. You put it on. Because you know it'll create a learning environment that is what you want. Yeah. And because even in teaching, there's a certain element of performance. Totally. Yep. In fact, not a certain element. But it is. It is a performance. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I... So the, the point is, 
by the end of those rehearsals, almost every rehearsal yeah. I've led on a Wednesday night like that, yeah. both I and the, the singers end the rehearsal with just so much joy, yeah. joy and energy. energy. Yeah. Right? Where you just kind of skip home. I know. It's crazy. And I started off having to pretend that. Yeah. But by the end, it was legitimate. Yeah. I've, and, I've experienced that so many times as well. Yeah. And so there's that question of like, do they, do they get you? Do they know you? Yeah. Well, I don't think most of those singers even realize that the beginning, I have to force it. Yeah. I, they think I just am yeah. an energetic person. Yeah. And I come with that because right. that's just who I am. But it is absolutely not true. Yeah. And yet by the end, they're seeing an authentic yeah. energy. So are they seeing the true self? I mean, some of both. And it's artifice. This is what I'm is. talking about. This is like, yes. this is the exact thing. It's a pretty good example. Yeah. And one it's becomes the other. perfect example. And do I even recognize when one becomes the other? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes not. Yes. Especially those rehearsals where it's like, oh, that time went fast, yeah. right? If I'm loving the experience. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's like this kind of this artifice stuff in like all of the ways. Like, yep. Is, are they seeing a real you or were they seeing the real you at the beginning or the end? Right. Are you like, what's the real experience? Like, and it's uh -huh. just, I don't, I mean, it's an unanswerable question, but I do think that these stories that we all have, we all have them as artists. I'm sure mm -hmm. other people do too. I just like the art conversations the best. <laughs> um, but I think we all have stuff like this. That's yeah. just, oh, it's my favorite. I love it so much. Well, um, to draw the analogy with running. Uh, you know, I run half marathons a lot. Um, and the beginning of a half marathon, there's a, there's a certain um, uh, thrill from just your adrenaline, adrenaline right? Yeah. Because you're at the starting line and everything. But you really have to force your body to get going. Yeah. Right? Uh, what, especially once you hit the, after the first half mile or mile of adrenaline starts to, to wear yeah. out. And then it, it's kind of brutal. Yeah. Right? And it gets more brutal to the end of the Until race. You get like a little high at but, the end, yeah. You know, by the end, you're just feeling so that runner's high, euphoric that, that people talk about. I have never felt that, well, but I do feel it. I do feel the like choir director's high. You know, yeah. like I mean, and I I was I was only directing. I mean, I did I did some jazz directing in college, um, but then when I was I was teaching at BYU those four years, and during those four years, my mom died, and. Mm -hmm. It was a really tough couple of years, but I felt that every single rehearsal, mm -hmm. like I would pull up into my parking spot and just feel like, I don't think I can do it. Yep. I don't think I can go in there and smile and find energy to give mm -hmm. these other people in this room. Yeah. Um, cause I have, feel like I have nothing left to give. And I would, I would, you know, by the end of the rehearsal, pretty much every single time, Yeah. like maybe with like a weird exception here or there. There's a Christmas tune that, encapsulates that principle uh, that the lyric says it's in the giving we receive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the kind of like, and I, that's the power of art in my life. Like, and I think it's why it's something that I, I can never stop doing because it is like healing in this mm. very, like, it's, it's not a passive kind of a thing. It's not like getting a massage, you know, it's like, <laughs> there's this, there's like all of this investment, but mm -hmm. the return is like, so reliably really good. Yep. And yet, don't you, do you find after, when you're done teaching something like that and you've given so much energy as a natural introvert, you just collapse yeah. afterwards? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you feel like you're drained and somebody just sucked everything out of you, even though you had this like yeah. wonderful, enlightening moment. Totally. Well, I only teach Monday through Wednesday now. 
Um, but I'm teaching kind of a lot, like especially on Tuesdays, I teach eight hours, like with kind of almost no breaks. Um, and yeah, on Thursday, I have to like not talk to anybody all day. Right. <laughs> like Thursday is like the day that I'm just like, I don't, even if like, you know, one of the brides from like my wedding band wants mm -hmm. to like schedule a call, like I can have nothing on the calendar all day. And it's like, I just, it's a I rebuild. cannot talk. Yep. I cannot speak to anyone during this day. Yeah. And do you think that's because, uh, because of the having to put it on or is it because the, the, um, this emotional high I think it's both. leaves you low. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I experienced that maybe is a little different, you teach private lessons too, mm -hmm. but all your students are kind of the same age. One, one thing that I feel is like, you know, I'll be teaching like a 10 year old girl and then my next student will be like a 65 year old man. Right. And there is something really exhausting about that. Mm -hmm. Like, and then, you know, I have a student who's really insecure and like, mm -hmm. I have to be very consciously like, mm -hmm super complimentary and very careful with any sort of criticism. Um, and then I'll have a student that's like kind of ego trippy, mm -hmm. you know, usually a young man. Um, like, you know, when I teach men who are like five to 10 years older than me, I find that very difficult sometimes. Like I have to be really assertive. Wow. Um, like I have to really kind of go out of my way to be like very, no, we're going to do this. Like they'll kind of that take over the lesson. Yeah. I've had the same experience really? with men five to 10 years older than me yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some gender, inter interesting yeah. gender Well, it might just there, be like the way that they have, that they're, they are kind of in their lives is normally like. Asserting the, themselves. Yeah. And I, I have to so. be really careful to like not let them take over the lesson. And then we get to the end and like, I haven't taught them anything because like <laughs> I've been like responding to them yes. the whole time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So who are so, these people? I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking yes. about. Yes. Um, I thank you for saying that. Cause I, it's, I feel like it's a bizarre thing to try to articulate, but mm -hmm. it is like a real, and I have to really like, well, you know, he'll say like, well, can we work on this? And I'll have to be like, no, that's not what you need. <laughs> you know, like I'll have to really, Oh my goodness. I, I want to talk about a specific person that you're describing right now, but I yeah. fear that they might actually hear yeah. this um, because I have had that. Student. Yeah, I, totally. Yes. And you have to be very like, no, what you need to work on. I thought about it before uh -huh. where like when you're teaching, you know, like a little kid, you might be like, what are you excited about today? Like, do you want to work on this piece? Right. I mean, at least for me, if I'm teaching a little girl, that's totally shy. Yeah. Like sometimes it's the complete opposite. Like mm -hmm. I need to be like, what are you happy about today? Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes I find that like, you know, after eight hours of private teaching, mm -hmm. when I'm really switching like that, I'm just like, Oh, like the, the like active empathy, like takes <sighs> it out of me. I, yeah. I feel that. Yeah. I feel the, the most draining experiences as a as a teaching artist is when the student doesn't isn't ready to receive what it is you have to offer yeah. in that in what you just described and then also i have such a hard time because i do teach high school aged in fact i am teaching piano lessons to a couple of young oh, really? kids oh, in my yeah, neighborhood you, actually you told me that yeah yeah it's it's kind of a new thing but um the students who are so shy and yeah. say have no bring no personality or yeah. or opinion. It's so hard. It's so it's draining. So hard. Yeah. It's to so just hard. Pull anything out of yeah. them, um, especially if it's a voice lesson. Yeah. And uh, yes. So those two extremes really, really suck the life out of me. Yeah. But I tell you what, what gives me great energy is those students where I just feel like 
my teaching matches their learning. Yes, it's the best. Yes, where you say you instruct them with a certain principle yeah. or analogy. And you just like watch them and then receive it. It changes everything. <laughs> it's so good. I know it's like this high, like uh -huh. I live for it. Well, the last kind of thing I wanted to ask you about is whether you wanted to say anything about, we've been kind of talking about pedagogy and what's like a beautiful about teaching, but if you have anything to say about that, you're welcome to. Or if you want to say anything about choir, like, and what's kind of what you want people to hear from your perspective about what's about your medium, hmm. but whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. You ask the good questions. Cause these are, you know, lifelong questions. Yeah. <clears throat> it's my favorite um, stuff. I, you know, my answer to these questions would ch change by the second. Yeah. But, um, hmm. um, maybe just to tie a couple of the principles together a little bit, the, um, one of the things that I'm really striving for these days in my own conducting and, and the choral performances that I put forward are, um, experiences that are like artistic products that are singular yeah. And by that I mean um, totally different, not totally different, but unique to this moment in time and these people. Yeah. Um, that I'm trying to choose pieces that are just timely, yeah. either for me autobiographically yeah. or for certain students or or for the population at large that I'm working with or, or the context of our country or the yeah. world. Um. But even even more specific to that in the art making that, um, you know, I believe so strongly in live performance being special. Yeah. And and not trying to <clears throat> teach, say, a, a choir um, to sing a song the same way every time. Yeah. Um, that there's a one right answer uh, and that it's always going to be just like this. And if you could sing it just so, and I know a lot of conductors don't agree with me about this, yeah. that they would rather, you know, for a lot there of conductors, is a perfect answer or there something. is, yeah. and for a lot of conductors, it's like my, my ideal would be, I teach it just so, and every I is dotted and T is crossed such that I could walk off the stage and they would know exactly yeah. how every single moment should yeah. be. And that's not my ideal. It's yeah. not my value system yeah. with art, um, that, I want both my experience as a conductor and theirs as an ensemble to that. Wow. That performance had just nuances that were totally unique. And here's the challenge with choir and they were together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we yeah. all did it together. Yeah. In some special ways. And, uh, and I'm not afraid of, um, art that, that is, um, a little rougher on the edges. Yeah. You know, it's a very jazz mindset of you, Reed. Well, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> you <laughs> I know don't what feel, I mean, though? I'm not like, a particularly jazzy guy, but, but I feel like that is like that because because I think that's a, that's a very like jazz aesthetic of like, mm -hmm. what are we today? Yeah. Like, because that's the that's the like that's the integrity behind like improvisation. And if, and jazz definitely mm. can become like a like a show off mm -hmm. bro fest. But mm -hmm. um, but like the, the kind of principles that I think are at the core of like the genre are, are usually more like, who are we today? What energy do we have today? And then can we improvise it 
together. Right. Um, yeah, it's that's a very like, that's a very jazz mindset, I think. Yeah. Oh, I'll take that. Yeah. Because in the classical world, and choral, the choral world really isn't just classical because choral just means singing together. Yeah. Right. So the genres really span way more than classical, but in the in the traditional choral canon, as it were, for Western art music, um, the the idea of musical excellence usually means nothing is out of place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't hear any individual voices. Yeah. Because there's that blend. Right. And and everyone is articulating and pronouncing things exactly the same. Yeah. And I don't know that that's always my highest value. Totally. Sometimes <laughs> it is of great value. Yeah. I think this is another one of those perfect examples of like this Renaissance man type of idea too, of like, yeah, I mean, like depth, there's a value to depth. There's a value to perfection, mm-hmm. like perfect excellence. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you, you particular being, you know, I don't know if called upon is like the right kind of thing or just inspired to, um, let there be like a different kind of flexibility. Like that's, mm-hmm. It's very important, I think. Like, I, I tend to feel a bit of radical acceptance about these kinds of things. Like, <laughs> what you as an artist are, like, you know, inspired to to believe about the art is, is might as well just believe it, you know? And <laughs> Let it, it change as it, as it changes. And you wouldn't think that these ideas would be that radical. But when you really look at the practice, they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not the accepted norm. Yeah, for for individuality to be totally um, noticeable in an ensemble environment, for instance. Yeah, you know, um, uh, especially when you think about um, the ways we uh, adjudicate performance. Yeah, be it in schools or or as a job. You know how well you're doing your job. Yeah. These kinds of things. Um, it, it, you know, to, to be an iconoclast and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily hold as, as dear some of those values that, that most people ascribe to, well, that might lose you, you you might lose your job. Yeah, totally. Yes. And when it comes to art, uh, that's a risky business. It's really tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I love, I love talking about these things. Like this is the stuff that I want to talk about forever. Cause it, it really is. It's like, well, our whole thing is creativity and like, mm-hmm. you know, exploration. Just not outside of certain boxes. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's so bizarre mm-hmm. and it's so interesting. And it's just, I don't know. I earlier kind of joking about like, am I old enough to feel? And I feel like, I feel like we are kind of in like the age where like we're old enough to have realized that we have changed like we're old, we're old enough to realize that like ourselves aren't fixed mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. We're old enough to like have confusion, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in a way that like maybe you don't quite have confusion when you're 18. Because but, things like, seem more black and white. Yeah, maybe. But also like young enough to know that like there will be like a lot of confusion later or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I feel very that like, dreary. <laughs> I, I don't, I feel the opposite about it. I feel like <laughs> as much as I can look back over the last decade and be like, what? Like, I love thinking about mm-hmm. like being a decade ahead and looking back at this and thinking like that was a weird time. Like, like I don't know. I kind of love it. 
yeah, that you're going to be more confused in the future. Yes. And you're looking forward to that. I am. <laughs> I am. Like, I'm not, I'm just fully genuine. Like, that's what I mean about, like, I think the, fa- the, the thing, the, like, philosophically, the place I'm in in my life is, like, as much as I can, kind of radical acceptance. Like, mm-hmm. take, you know, take the interests as they come, take the problems as they come, look back on it later and kind of think like, what was that? Hmm. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It feels like an interesting idea to me at the moment. And maybe you'll look back 10 years from now and go, oh, that was foolish. Yeah. 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 Actually, the other day I had someone <laughs> kind of like accuse me of thinking that I understand everything. And I was like, oh, I understand nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really am a person. Like, you said that to the wrong person. Because, like, <laughs> I really feel very sure that I understand very little. <laughs> mm. Like, I feel like the only thing I do understand is that, like, everything is dualities and pluralities mm-hmm. and totally dependent on perspective. And You're to- touching on more Buddhist yeah. topics. One of the big terms is non-duality. Yeah. Well, I read Tara Brock's book. Okay. So... Years ago, and have been mulling over that for yeah. a while. So it's all kind of as a jazzer. Yeah, it there's a lot of common themes. Yeah, and I think that's probably why I was ultimately drawn to that music in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's just it's something that is probably somewhat. I think I probably have a little a little bit of a bohemian spirit mm-hmm. in a very very analytical mind. So it's kind of a I don't know. Like I have, I feel like I have a duality, and then I just think like. Yeah, this is just what it is. But, and know. sometimes the the bohemian comes out, and sometimes the analytical. And like we were talking about initially, you know, I've I've seen your analytical side to a you have seen it to a point. Yeah, and <laughs> you um, might know it better than like really anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I think you know talking through a lot of these bohemian uh, revolutionary kind of concepts of just breaking things down and and not accepting it, um, the norms for at face value is. Um, is why we're artists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I think, you know, we find comfort in structure, the structure, (laughs) right. There's, it's so comforting. Yeah. Like I need, I don't know. I feel like Andrew teases me about having like kind of organized chaos in my life. Like Mm -hmm. I, I will get very chaotic about some things. Like it finds chaos finds like pockets Mm -hmm. in my life Mm -hmm. often like, the pocket is literally my purse, you know, like don't look in there. There's just a lot of garbage in my purse, you know, I'm kind of joking, but also like, it's kind of true. Yeah. My husband (laughs) and I talk about this a lot because he, he has everything organized, you know, everything is organized. And, uh, but I have to have like a space that is just for chaos. Chaos. Yes. Yeah. I thought you were like not understanding me, but you totally are. Oh no, I have spaces. Yeah. Like drawers, cupboards, They're around it like, and it somehow makes me feel good to have it there. It me too. Mm -hmm. Like I like knowing that my wallet has so many receipts in it that it's hard for me to find my credit card Mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. That is so funny. You know, in the compositional process there, you know, I'll be writing and writing pieces, but I always have kind of these, the pages, they're just fragments. Me too. And I keep them fragments. Yeah. And every so often I might plot a fragment, turn it into something. Read. I do the same thing. I'm not even kidding you. Mm -hmm. But they have to stay in that place. Yeah, in that separate file. I Uh keep mine in like an actual Word document because I have bad handwriting. Mm -hmm. But I have a Word document that's just like messy messes. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that used to be post-it notes. Yeah. Until that was a thing of 
the nineties or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> like, I had post-it notes everywhere at one point. Uh, I love it. And then we have been friends for such a long time yeah. and I've never talked about any of these things. No. And now I feel like I know some important things about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now we, I know that we both have weird pockets of chaos that we need in order to feel balanced. To feel balanced. Yeah. That's right. That's so funny. It's not the thing that most people see, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, because I think probably that's really true for you. But I think for me, like there definitely are people professionally who maybe see me as kind of a chaotic person, which is funny because like you certainly don't. In what realm? Uh, I don't know. Like maybe just um, maybe like in the spaces where I'm trying to promote my original music. Uh-huh. It's like, what is she doing? Like, there's too many things going on. There's too much happening. And I maybe seem a little bit like unfocused. Scattered. Yeah. Or like also in my family, mm-hmm. in my neighborhood. Like, I think sometimes I f- am, seem very chaotic. I don't know. I'd like to see that proved. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could <laughs> probably call up any you. of my siblings yeah. and they might tell you. But again, you That's know, like, it's that might just be like the mm-hmm. artist just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the simple fact that I follow my passions where they take me. You know, that's kind of chaotic, don't you think? Kind of in and of itself. Uh, it can be. Yeah. I, yeah, it depends on what your passion is, I guess. I guess. If you have a passion yeah. for <laughs> tax law. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Oh, I don't. <laughs> uh, well, I always ask everybody at the very end, on this day, what is your dream collaboration? Who would you love to work with? Any medium, any time period. Who would you love to work with? I have a mask on. Otherwise, you'd just see my just jaw drop. <laughs> like, um, uh, I also never know how to ask, answer this question, even though I ask it to people you, all the time. Who would you collaborate with from any time period or medium? Yeah, and it could oh, just, you know, just today. Like, who's popping into your head today? This isn't even fair because it's it's just <laughs> who's popping into my head is Whitney Houston because she like you know gave the best Super Bowl yeah. national oh, anthem performance the in the history right yeah. so it's on my mind. How would and, you want to collaborate? I mean, I would want to dance with somebody, right? Like, yeah. I would. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know something where she's. What would I do with Whitney Houston? Well, you I could do. You could arrange something for like an orchestra and choir. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that's something I've never done to write for a full choir and orchestra together. But someday, really, yeah, maybe Whitney Houston would be our soloist. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that a be great? A recording of Whitney Houston can be your soloist. That is a medium these days. You know, yeah. you play tape. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Whitney Houston would be our yeah our ghost from the past. But then it couldn't be flexible. That's okay. Yeah, that's true. Well, I love it. I love that. That's excellent. <laughs> okay. And then very, very finally, tell people where they can like find your work or read more about you or talk to you or whatever. Sure. Yeah. If you just go online and Google my name, it's pretty easy to find. Okay. Uh, read Criddle. I have a website with my compositions. and uh, Readcriddle.com? Honestly, I don't even remember. We'll what figure it, it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Just Google. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, um, I'm putting on performances at UVU all the time at okay. Utah Valley University. So come out to a choral concert. I'd love to see you. Great. Reed, thank you so much. It was such a joy to talk to you. Pleasure. It always is. 
Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from my album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel and ad segment music by Jerem Hansen. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.